We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, 42 Faith, The Rest of the Jackie Robinson Story. The publisher, W Publishing, an imprint of Thomas Nelson, the author, Ed Henry. Please join me as we welcome Ed Henry to the club. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad pleasure. to be here. Thank this you. is a gem, an oasis in Manhattan, so I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And just uh, mainly for those listening to the podcast, I just want to do a very brief bio uh, of Ed, uh, just to kind of set the stage, since Ed's uh, background is a little different than the 150 or so other baseball, quote-unquote baseball authors that have been here. Uh, Ed Henry serves as Fox News Channel's chief national correspondent. He joined the network in June 2011. Ed has won numerous journalism honors, including the Everett McKinley Dirksen Award for Distinguished Reporting of Congress and the White House Correspondents Association's Merriman Smith Award for Excellence in Presidential Coverage Under Deadline Pressure. He also served in the prestigious post of President of the White House Correspondents Association from 2012 to 2013. Prior to joining Fox News Channel, Ed was at CNN from 20, 2004 to 2011. He began his career working for Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Jack Anderson. And Ed's here in the clubhouse now. All right, thank you. So just to get us going with 42 Faith, if you could just let us know how this book project came to be. It came uh, to be by accident. I was at a, um, a dinner at the Belgium Ambassador's house uh, in Washington, and I was at CNN at the time, and I thought, this is some fancy pants dinner. This is going to be great. Uh, it was October of 2007, and the Rockies and the Red Sox, as I recall, were in the World Series. I grew up a Yankees fan, so I had no dog in the fight. So I go to this dinner. Uh, strike one was the ambassador saying that he was serving pigeon. Um, and <laughs> having been born in Astoria and grew up on Long Island, I thought, all I could think about were these dirty birds. And uh, I'm not talking about the Atlanta Falcons or whatever their nickname is. <laughs> Strike two was uh, slicing it open and seeing these little bones in there and thinking, you know, what is going on here? I learned later <clears throat> that it's actually called squaw because it's sort of a delicacy in Belgium. Um, Jay, I assume you don't, you didn't know that not either. Not a big pigeon fan. Not a big no. pigeon fan, yeah. <clears throat> Strike three was a senator got an award, and you know, this is kind of 25 people. It's an intimate setting like this. Um, and so, you know, I would think you would get up for two or three minutes and thank everyone and maybe leave us with one or two positive thoughts. It became a Senate filibuster of uh, <laughs> 20 or 25 minutes. So I turned to the woman next to me, this older woman, who I, we had talked to a couple things. She was a journalist, didn't know her before that evening, and I said, you know, I'm going to leave before dessert because um, I want to go watch the World Series. It was nice to meet you. And she said, uh, oh, you're a baseball fan? I said, yeah, yeah. Grew up loving the Yankees. And she said, uh, my late father-in-law had a major role in baseball history, but the story's never been told. So I sat back down and said, what are you talking <laughs> about? She starts spinning out this story about how her, her father-in-law was a minister in Brooklyn at Plymouth Church, which is a very famous church in Brooklyn Heights, still standing today. I was there a couple nights ago as this book tour began. Uh, my wife and I walked around because she hadn't seen it yet. I had done some of the research on my own. And it's a beautiful church. Abraham Lincoln preached there, among many others. Uh, but I think most movingly, it was a stop on the Underground Railroad um, in the 1800s. 
So um, the minister was Reverend Wendell Fifield. This woman who was the daughter-in-law says that there was a knock at the door and the secretary says, yeah, okay, let me call upstairs to the second floor. Uh, man's got a problem, needs to talk to the minister right away. So send him upstairs. Wendell Fifield sitting there doing work at his desk. Uh, and as the story was relayed, the man said, go ahead and do your work. I'm thinking, thinking through a problem. And so the way I, you sort of elaborate on it is that the minister had done this before where somebody wants to confess something embarrassing but can't quite verbalize it. Um, so the man sat down and stood up and sat down and stood up and paced and sighed and prayed. Uh, and finally, after 45 minutes, put his hat back on and slammed his fist and seemed to be crying as he headed for the door and said, I got it. And the minister said, you know, out with it. You know, I've given you all this spiritual space. What, what's going on in your head? And she turned to me and said, do you know who that man was? And I said, it had to be Branch Rickey, who in 1945, because I didn't know a lot about Dodgers history, to be honest, but I knew that Jackie's first contract was in 1945 to play for the Montreal Royals. She said, yeah, Branch Rickey had second thoughts, and he came to my father-in-law and wanted to pray on this. He knew it was the right thing, but he, he just needed to get maybe get over the finish line. And he ended the meeting by saying something to the effect of, I've decided to sign Jackie Robinson in the first baseball contract. It's the hardest decision of my life. I needed to be in your presence, he said to the minister. I needed to be in God's presence to know it was the right thing to do. Sounded like a beautiful story to me, but I was skeptical as a journalist at how you actually track this down. Um, and I had a day job, so you know I took, took some time on this. And by sheer happenstance, I ran into this woman again in uh, 2011. Uh, I recall it being sort of early 2011, and she says, remember me? It was at a charity event, and I said, <laughs> Branch Rickey. And she said, that's right. I mean, she has this way about her, you know, where she pointed her finger. Uh, she worked with Marilyn Monroe way back when, mm -hmm. described herself as a cheesecake uh, material with Marilyn <laughs> in some sort of a magazine or something that was appropriate, not inappropriate. Um, and she said, you know, remember me? And I said, Branch Rickey. And she said, that's right. Are you going to do the story or not? And she was sort of nagging me in a, in a polite way. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. I'm so busy. Um, and so in April of 2011, I did a little story for CNN at the time saying um, that there was like a hidden hand of God in the decision. And just to wrap up that part so we can get to sort of the broader point and then get into all the Dodgers stuff that we want to talk about. Um, the minister, of course, kept this confidential, as ministers do. But in the early 60s, he was maybe getting ill or, you know, and he decided to tell his wife, June Fifield, that he felt there was a twist on history and uh, Branch Rickey, you know, had some second thoughts. I don't want to exaggerate it, that he was about to pull out or what, what, it, what it was. Because um, I, I also think that Branch Rickey being, and uh, Lee will know this uh, better than me, you know, sort of someone who, you know, very demonstrative and all about history and things, that he may have just already made the decision and felt like this was a final gut check um, and the church, by the way, uh, Plymouth Church is mere steps, you know, a couple minute walk from 215 Montague Street where the Dodgers had their offices. So there were elements of the story that, that seemed to work. And after I did some more research, I found out that Wendell Fifield had been at Ebbets Field at least once for a, a prayer service at home plate with a rabbi uh, at the end of World War II. I think the president had decreed it a day of prayer and Branch Rickey brought Fifield in. So they had some sort of a relationship um, and so what, as I pieced it together, uh, he told his wife before he died, and she kept that secret and wrote a five-page essay that she wanted to put in the church bulletin, but waited until Ricky died, 64, 65. 
wanting to respect his privacy and not wanting to embarrass him while he was still alive, that maybe he had cried. As I talked to Branch Rickey III, who's still alive, the grandson, he said it had the ring of truth to him because his grandfather would sit around a table every Sunday night and tell these stories, go into great detail. And then he would go around the table and say, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? You know, and like the Harrison Ford in 42. And, and, and everyone's <laughs> thought, and what the grandson thought was amazing, he might be a nine-year-old kid, and it might be about the politics of the day. And he would still ask a nine-year-old kid, what do you think? And what do you think? And then at the end of that, he would say, here's what needs to happen on that issue. You know, he had the the idea, but he wanted to hear all sides. So maybe this, the minister was part of his checklist. Um, and so then she put this in the, in the church bulletin um, and said in the essay that she wanted Jackie Robinson to know that there was a hidden hand of God in the decision. And so my journey was to try to figure out, A, did Jackie Robinson know this before he, you know, between 65 and 72, there was a tight window when he died so early. Uh, did he know about this? Um, near miss, I guess. Um, and secondly, how, how much of a role did faith play, not just in Branch Rickey's decision-making, but in Jackie sustaining all the pressure and the punishment and the attacks, the death threats and all of that? So that's the journey, and we can fill in the blanks from there. Okay. Well, one of the sentences that you wrote in the book uh, is, just to read the one sentence, is the central question of this book, how much of a role did faith play in helping Robinson make history against such long odds? Yeah. And obviously, it's not a short answer. Yeah. Uh, but if, and I don't want you to give away everything in the book yeah. necessarily, right. but what, what, whatever you want to say on that. Yeah. What I would say is that the purpose of the book, so that I don't give everything away, and I give a lot of time here for, I want you to ask me 100 questions. <laughs> um, really. Um, which is that um, the premise of the book for me was that central question. Um, and my theory, or, you know, however you want to phrase it, is that these were two men who were vastly different. I mean, to state the obvious, you had a white man, a black man, different generations, different regions of the country. You know, Ricky grows up in rural Ohio on a farm, the Kentucky border. Um, Jackie, born in, on a plantation in Georgia. His mother was so brave. I mean, that was one of the things that really shines through. Here's a woman, to be an African-American woman in the deep south around 1920, your husband leaves home, um, you've got five kids, she, one of the things that really stuck out to me in my research was, um, and I want to give, you know, Lee Lowenfish has done amazing work. He's here, and, and I've, it's really an honor to meet him. Uh, Arnold Romperstadt, I, I did a phone interview with him, and he's written a very awesome biography of, of Jackie, um, and I think has done other papers and things. He's a retired professor, I believe, at Stanford out in California, and maybe other institutions. Um, so I'm not pretending that I was the first to plow this ground. We can get into that, because I had a lot of publishers slam the door in my face saying, well, Lee Lowenfish already wrote this book, and Arnold Ramperstad, and so I didn't always like Lee Lowenfish, but now I, I like him a lot. Um, and um, I felt like there was something different. I wanted to, I wanted to build on everyone's work um, and add another dimension to it. I think, in fairness, I'm sure Lee and Arnold, and Arnold in particular, uh, about the Jackie side of this, did talk about Jackie's faith a little bit. But I think we're all, we're baseball fans, so everyone wants to know about the home runs he hit and the dramatic catch against the Phillies that got them into the 51 playoff against the Giants. Um, and we want to know about civil rights because he left an awesome legacy on that. And I just thought that there was just another dimension. And so I'm not trying to say that faith was the only ingredient or, or necessarily wasn't necessarily even the most important ingredient. But I wanted to add that I think 
you had these two men propelled together in history. I said that they were the white and black, young and old, different regions of the country. And all they really had in common was this love of this game of baseball that we all love uh, and a deep faith in God, by the way, instilled in both of them by their mothers. I talked about that train ride. One of the, I started to say one of the most amazing facts I learned, uh, again, that this one was in previous books. It wasn't something I uncovered. Um, Mally Robinson had literally had a few dollars sewn into her dress on the train ride from Georgia to Pasadena. If you were to take Amtrak now from Georgia to Pasadena in the first class car, it would be a, a very you know, long, arduous journey. Now do it in 1920, 1921, <laughs> and do it while African-American with five kids in the so-called colored cars that I'm sure were not air-conditioned and I'm sure were not clean. And this woman had guts. And so you want to know where they came from for Jackie. I, I get credit her mom, his mom. And I say that um, she was a Methodist. Um, Branch was a Methodist uh, and, and his parents. And in, the, in terms of the movie 42, it's one of the best lines, right? Uh, you know, um, Branch Rickey saying, I'm a Methodist, Jackie, you're a Methodist, God's a Methodist, we can't lose. <laughs> now, I have no record, I'm going to let Lee quiz me, I have no record that Branch Rickey ever said that, but um, I think it was for Hollywood, and I think it made a point that they were bound together by faith, and I said, aha, and I, I'll give you a lot of examples as we talk, but uh, I'm not trying to tear down anyone else's work, I'm trying to build on it and say, there's another dimension to this story. Well, you did a terrific job with the story and, and uh, the storytelling of it, too. The way, and definitely don't give this away, yeah. but one of the stories that I love that, that you let go through the book, but just talk about the beginning, really, yeah. is uh, an IHOP. <laughs> uh, let's leave it there. You talk about an IHOP. Well, I will briefly say, and then I want to make a point about Roger Kahn. So if I get, I get lost on another highway, bring me back to Roger Kahn because I want to credit him. The Boys of Summer, which is a seminal book that I'm sure everyone here has read. Um, it helped me get my arms around how to write this story because I'm a working journalist and Jackie's been dead since 1972. Um, all these wonderful authors have written, have plowed this ground before, so what am I adding? Um, and so let me start there and then I'll get to the IHOP before I forget, which is that <laughs> I was struggling with the narrative. I had all the facts, I had the new information, I had, I had a lot of it written, um, but I was struggling with uh, my editors were saying that I kept jumping around in the early uh, draft, and this is my first book, um, you know, jumping around between 1945 and today. And I was trying to breathe life into the narrative by, as a working journalist, showing my reporting in real time. And so I start out at an IHOP in Anderson, Indiana, because one of the only living links to Jackie um, is Carl Erskine. And he's 90 years old, right. and he's sharp as a tack. And I respect the fact that this man went on to good heights. I'm not saying he was the greatest pitcher ever, but I'm not going to exaggerate. But when you throw two no-hitters and you strike out 14 Yankees in a World Series game, including Mickey Mantle four times, I'm going to, I'm going to tip my cap to you. Um, and so, and remind me later when we're having fun, it's not amazing. Um, Carl's got a great story about the second no-hitter. It involves Jackie and it involves his wife. So I, I'm going to tease you with that. But... <clears throat> So I originally would sort of start a chapter with like Jackie in the 40s and then all of a sudden I'm flashing back but I'm flashing back to the IHOP in Anderson, Indiana with Carl Erskine and it's just it becomes painful because you're like how do I go and, and my editors are going crazy. So 
one day in despair, I, I kind of reread The Boys of Summer in one night, you know? Yeah. Like, I, why, why can't I get my arms around this narrative? And I credit Roger Kahn because I said, okay. So he had book one, which was like real time, the 50s, when he was covering them. And then book two was, let's go back and find them. And here's where Jackie is and Duke Snyder, and here's what they're angry about, and here's what they're bitter about, or here's what they're happy about. And so I said, okay, so maybe I'll start you know, in, in, in real time, in, in the 40s and the 50s with them, and then I'll come back, and now I'm going to Carl Erskine, and, I'm, and it dawned on me, no. I, then I'm copying Roger Kahn. I said, but I'm not copying Roger Kahn if I flip what he did. <laughs> so I said, why don't I start every chapter in the present tense where I am as a reporter? So I start with, you know, chapter one is an IHOP in Anderson, Indiana with Erskine, and then flash back, which is natural in each chapter, to Jackie, who's the actual subject of the book, and Branch, and so do a reverse Roger Kahn. And so far, a couple of people who had no idea that I had that despair have said, I really like how you take us along on the journey to IHOP and other places, sort of what you referred to. Uh, and that, that makes me feel good, because I think that part of the book um, works. Uh, there was another part to your question, though. You were saying the no, IHOP. that that yeah. I love. So Roger Kahn, yeah. and, and so Carl Erskine and I are on an IHOP, um, and and I kind of thread him through the book, because um, I'll tell you another quick story, which is I, I would like to talk about 1951 later in this conversation, because I'd love to get questions about it and hear your thoughts, and and um, I have a couple of nuggets that I think are fun, but. Um, Initially, it was Carl Erskine was very accessible, um, and said he'd talk to me as much as I want. So we did a lot of phone stuff, and then I finally flew to Indiana, and spent three hours at that IHOP. Um, and initially, I said, "Hey, can you help get Carl, Ralph Branca on the phone?" And he said, uh, "Yeah, um, I don't want to give you his number. He's he's more private than I am. I'll get back to you." And this is uh, over a year ago when when Ralph was still alive, obviously, and. Initially, he called me and Erskine said, you know, Ralph uh, feels like he's talked about all this stuff and he wishes you well with your project, but he doesn't want to talk. And then um, about March of last year, um, he, Carl emailed me and said, hey, I got a call from Ralph today. He wants to talk to you. So I don't know if he maybe was thinking through some things or whatnot. I don't want to read into it. Uh, and I started calling him. And, you know, he lived at the Westchester Country Club. Right. So the number was like the main number and it was a switchboard. And then you call, and it would just ring and ring and ring. And then there was, rather than a voicemail or an iPhone or something, there was like an answering machine from like 1978. And it was like, you've reached the Branca residence. We're not home right now. You know? And I left them you know, like 12 or 14 messages trying to be a diligent reporter and never got them. And then finally one day, Ann Branca answered the phone. I had been doing a lot of research about, I didn't know when I started this that Ann was, is the daughter of some of the old part owners of the Dodgers. And in 51, I found it remarkable that at the beginning of the year, you know, Ralph says to the dad who was a part owner of the Dodgers, you know, I would like to take your daughter's hand in marriage. And he says, that's great. We'll pay for the reception. He said, that's great. When are you thinking? And he says, I'm thinking, you know, pick the date, October 17th or whatever. It's about three days after we beat the Yankees in the World Series of 51. And um, Branca says, great. And the father-in-law says, great. And Branca says, what could go wrong? And I thought that was just sort of hanging out there. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Um, but Ralph Branca was a man of deep faith. And basically, Ann picked up the phone. And I said, oh, my God, Ann Branca, you know. And, um, and long story short, she said that he was quite ill and that um, 
she would try to get to him if he got better. And then I never got to him, unfortunately, before he passed, but I did get Bobby Valentine, his son-in-law, on the phone. Right. Yeah. And he was with him in his final days and told me a couple of interesting stories that I can get into or, or you'll see in the book. Well, as you talk about all the, all the fate or faith, however you want to describe it, of things that happened yeah. towards the end of the book, uh, we haven't discussed, but Ralph and I go back a, lo uh, a long ways. And the, the first time, I, I used to represent Ralph and Bobby for their marketing. Ah. And I met Ralph, the first time I met him to see if he would let me represent him, was actually at a, which is now closed, a Jewish deli across the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral. Oh. And when Ralph found out that he was actually Jewish right. by, through Josh Prager, right. uh, it kind of brought everything full circle. And that was a remarkable, and since, you know, so I had one publisher after another. I want to tie break into this, so if you want to talk about 51. And I kept telling these publishers, like, look, there's so many faith angles to this story beyond Jackie and Branch. And when you think about Ralph Branca, you know, giving up this home run, and, you know, a man who's very faithful Catholic, and, you know, he says in his memoirs that he didn't want to pray for a Dodgers win because he didn't really think God picked sides in sports. I mean, he was such a stickler and so serious about his faith. Um, and, and Catholic, Catholic, Catholic. And then he throws this pitch, and I interview Vince Scully for the book. And Scully describes this scene where Red Barber had told him, you know, one rule. Kid, don't get to know these players too much. Because when you do, they're going to make an error, and then you're going to cover for them in the broadcast, and the, and the fans are going to know that you're too close to them. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And... Scully says that he broke that for one person, and it was Ralph Branca. So Ralph and Ann were engaged or dating, and Scully was dating someone. I think it was not his future wife who's dating someone. They went on like two double dates. So he's the number three broadcaster on October 3rd, 51. Have you heard this? Yeah. Yeah, and basically the pitch is thrown. Thompson hits the homer, and Scully's in the booth, and he looks down at the wives and girlfriends section, and sees Ann Branca, and in Scully's way, you know, she reaches into her purse, she pulls out a white handkerchief, and buries her face in the handkerchief. And he said, in that moment, it said everything about the heartache of the Dodgers, but also, I knew Red Barber was right, you know, right. and, and he, he realized. And so then he goes out to the field, and he wants to, like, kind of get away from Ann and not watch her. He feels bad that she's crying. He goes out on the polo grounds, and he describes the you know, two or three steps to step up to the door and you open the door and then there's three or four or five steps to go down into the clubhouse. And he almost trips on Ralph face down, the number 13 there, and describes sort of stepping over his left arm uh, in order to go to the trainer's room and just, again, just bolt and not feel like he's staring at a man crying. He encounters Jackie and Pee Wee in the trainer's room and eavesdrop on a conversation I'll let you read that because it's fun. <laughs> um, but I, to end that part, I'd say, you know, I find it remarkable that Ralph pulls himself together. He's encouraged, by the way, by Jackie, who here's a guy who Brancus put his neck on the line for Jackie Robinson early on. I've got great respect for him for doing that. And now in 51, it's almost like God acting again. Jackie was one of the people in the locker room, and Bobby Valentine told me it's very clear. I heard it from other sources historically that Ralph remembered on his deathbed that, that Jackie was one of the people in the clubhouse saying, Ralph, we wouldn't have even gotten to this game without you, you know? And so I wrote that in the book and one of my editors caught like, wow, he wrote a little note in it. And I hadn't really thought of it this way. And he said, you know, 
It's remarkable that where the book started that now, all these years later, it's Jackie picking up some of the white players and, and having their back, right? And then Ralph pulls himself together, takes a shower, puts on his clothes, goes out to the parking lot to meet Anne, and forgets that the number three in their dinner party that night is a Catholic priest. And he says to the priest, you know, why me, why me? And, and the priest basically says, because God believes you're strong enough to carry this cross. And he believed that to the end. Right. But then when Josh Prager writes a book about the giants and approaches him and says, somebody contacted me and they think they know your mom and they think she's Jewish, she was Jewish. And, and so Branko all these years is carrying this cross as a Catholic <laughs> and it turns out he's Jewish. I don't, I mean, that's a whole nother book. Yeah. I can't, I couldn't yeah. even get into that. Yeah. Well, you tell, uh, through the book, you really have, there's some really beautiful stories be with Jackie and Ralph together. It's really, yeah. it's beautiful. And uh, I'm just going to ask one more question, then we'll open it up, because uh, I know there's going to be a lot of questions. Sure. Maybe this is a literary question, I'm not sure, but there's a story that uh, Larry King, who wrote the foreword, yeah. he tells a story of... Uh, Jackie Robinson and Enos Slaughter. Yeah, country book. Yeah, which I thought was fantastic. And then you bring back the story within the book. Yeah. And uh, I was just wondering, and it's it's that particular story is not a faith story in in yeah. in any way. Yeah. But I thought it was a, a a fantastic story. But the fact that you brought it back a second time, I was just wondering. Uh, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but, but yeah, was but, there a reason why yeah. that particular story comes back again? So it started out with me interviewing Larry King because, again, I'm looking for living links to Jackie. And Larry's at his first game. Um, actually, it was kind of like Jackie's second game at Evans Field because another character in my book that I can get into is Jerry Reinsdorf, who's become a very good friend, owns the White Sox and the Dodgers, uh, and, the Dodgers, and the Bulls. Um, and when, I'll answer your question before I forget, I want to say, throughout my project, I felt, I don't want to be, I don't want to overdo it and say God was telling me to do this or that. But I would reach certain points in this thing and just be like, you know, I have doors slammed in my face and the book was never going to get published. And a very good friend of mine, Mark Sullivan, uh, does some business with Jerry Reinsdorf. And one night, you know, they're together watching a Bulls game in, in the Washington, D.C. area for ahead of a board meeting or something. Just coincidental. I pop up on Fox. Jerry says, oh, I like that guy. Mark says he's a friend of mine. Mark calls me. Hey, you want to come watch a Bulls game with who? Uh, the owner of the Bulls. <laughs> well, why wouldn't I do that? And um, I still know nothing about Jerry's connection to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, he happens to mention uh, that he'd like to leave his hotel for a little while to go smoke a cigar and ask me if I'd like to join him to which I say, great. And he goes into his room, we're in like a suite, um, and he swears that I'm making this part up, jokingly, but I remember him wearing either a Brooklyn Dodgers jacket or a hat, something that made me say, he says he doesn't have such a jacket. So I don't know how <laughs> this came out, but that's my recollection. It was winter and he was putting something on with Dodgers and I said, Dodgers, you own the White Sox. And he said, I was born in Flatbush. And I said, what? I said, well, I'm trying to write this book about Jackie Robinson. I can't get it published. And he said, I was at Jackie Robinson's first game. And it was getting weird. You know, I'm like, this is, I'm, I keep meeting people. And so I'll tell you more about Jerry uh, later. But he became an unbelievable source. And the owner of the Bulls and the White Sox copy edited the book. <laughs> I sent him early drafts of it. And he would say, you're missing a comma. You're missing this. 
he would, he would press me on facts because he's read everything about the Dodgers. And at the beginning of the project, he said, are you sure you're going to do a whole book about faith? I mean, it, it sounds interesting. And at the end of it, he said, you sure did it. I like this book. And when Jerry Reinsdorf, who's a tough customer, told me that it was a good book, I, I, I like breathed a sigh of relief. So I interviewed Larry King, um, and I was trying to get some stories out of him. He tells this wonderful story about Eunice Country Slaughter that I'll tell you. Uh, and so originally, I had it in the book. Um, and then Larry says, I'll write the forward. So, and, and he turned it in late in the process because um, I was putting all the pieces together. And I already had the Enos Country Slaughter anecdote in the book, and I thought it was interesting. Then he puts it in the forward, and my editors say, you're telling the same story twice, and they're getting all over me. And so I'm like, you're right, but it's a great story. And so we, I tried to make it like kind of a second reference, like as Larry said right. earlier. And I just felt like it needed a second mention. The way he describes it, he says that, and I was questioned by someone else who said, are you sure that's true? Because I've never read that anywhere else. And you know, some of these things you, you have to trust that, you know, so Larry spoke to Enos Country Slaughter at the Cracker Jack Old Timers game in the 80s. So there was this thing where some of these old players were, didn't have a lot of money and, and they were trying to raise money for, so they did these things. And they did it in Washington for a couple of years and I think it went away. And I remember watching my memory is Luke Appling, right? Is that his name? Hitting a home run. He was like 75 years old. He hit a home run. So what is going on? The guy's running around the bases. And they're like, get an oxygen tank. What's going on? So Larry is sitting around the batting cage, and he says, Enos Country Slaughter comes up and um, says, you, you were from Brooklyn, right? You know, yeah, yeah, I love Jackie. I tell you that son of a bitch. And, you know, he, he did this whole thing. And he tells this story that, the first part of this is definitely documented, which is that I saw in many credible places um, and Jackie himself wrote about it, by the way, a, a first-person source, that early in that first year of 47, I think in St. Louis, if I have it right, um, Jackie's playing first base, of course, and Enos Country Slaughter, who I think it was North Carolina they grew up in, um, basically sharpens his spikes and everything and grounds a ball and runs through Jackie and steps on, his, I think, the back of his ankle, and he's bleeding through his uniform. And he, the way Country Slaughter says it, I stood on first base, I looked at Jackie, he looked at me, I didn't say nothing, he didn't say nothing, I spit my tobacco juice, I didn't say nothing, he didn't say nothing, I knew he couldn't do anything because Branch Rookie had this thing where he couldn't fight back, he's bleeding through the uniform, and Jackie just sort of takes it. This is one of many you know, heroic acts where J Jackie, rather than punching him out, which he certainly wanted to do, he took it. The point of the story is that what Slaughter told Larry King is that later that season, I believe, they're at Ebbets Field, or no, a, a year or two later, because now Jackie's playing second base. Right. That's what it is. Um, you know, Slaughter rifles one off the wall in right field at Ebbets Field or something like that, and comes barreling into second base and slams into Jackie. Jackie gets the ball, takes his glove, and slams Slaughter in the gums. And the way Slaughter said, he knocked out three teeth. And he said, I was pissed, but I respect that son of a bitch. Because he never forgot. And, and, you know, and so Jackie was holding this in. I felt it was enlightening. Right. And he um, you know, was saying it to Jackie's great credit that, look, it's one thing to take the abuse, but it was building and building. And the fact that when Ricky unleashed him and said, you can fight back, you know, he wanted to show that, that he was tough and that he could fight back and that he had been taking all this abuse. 
And I think the fact that he did his country slaughter tipped his cap and said, that was one tough SOB. All right, so does anyone want to lead off with, the, with our first question? So I was just wondering, uh, did, in your research, did you find any like the opponent players that played for Jackie's time, did they share the same fate? Like, did there any kind of bonding or anything like that? I, I didn't see as much with opposing players other than an anecdote that I saw in several credible places that I think I briefly refer to, which is that one of the things that I found um, writing a book now as opposed to say 10 or 20 years ago about Jackie was with eBay, you can get all these original magazine articles and back in the day, you know, Jackie would write, you know, first person accounts. Now, did he write it? Was it a ghostwriter? It's most likely a ghostwriter. Look Magazine, Life Magazine. But you have it, you know, by Jackie Robinson and either he wrote it or he told it to someone. Um, and you go on eBay and I've got a mountain of magazine articles and in one of them, I recall, I don't have it in front of me, but Jackie talking about Hank Greenberg and I saw that you had a tribute right. to Hank Greenberg in the store. And I wrote about it in the context of Ben Chapman and the Phillies. That was a turning point because Ben Chapman went so far over the top with his racist comments as the manager of the Phillies at Jackie that some of Jackie's white teammates finally stepped up and said enough is enough, you know. Eddie Stanky being yeah. a big one. Um, and um, I mentioned, again, I don't want to forget, Carl Erskine and Ralph Franca, though, fought on Jackie's behalf, I think, before Stanky, you know, and particularly Branca. And I have an example of that we can talk about later. But um, Jackie, I recall, in one of these magazine articles, himself saying that, boy, Chapman really overstepped. I felt like the, the Dodgers bonded. And we really came together over the overstep. And then he referred in one of these articles to Hank Greenberg standing on first base or second base and telling him, hang in there, you know, they've said stuff like that to me because I'm Jewish. So that's what I saw is that there was, I don't want to exaggerate it, but I know of at least one historical occasion. Uh, because now with, you know, with travel and, you know, the, some of these players in the off season might go down to the Caribbean together and hang out. You see them on social media. But I don't think Hank Greenberg and Jackie Robinson were vacationing together in the winter. But, so I don't want to overstate it, but I, I know there are examples in particular of Greenberg and Robinson bonding. And I think that's part of the message of my book too, you know, is that there were people like Hank Greenberg who, who they knew what he was going through and, and, and they felt it. I'll go you and you. Yeah, I saw your hand and then, yeah. Uh, I've had contact with Sharon Robinson. Rachel, I have written a book myself a little about the ball thing. Anyway, uh, it's very hard to get I just want to get her input from my talk I always do on discrimination in baseball. I was talking yeah. about. And uh, so have you, did you have any contact with her writing the book? How did that work? Yeah, I did. I did one interview with Rachel Robinson, but, okay. you know. And Sharon, too? And I did speak to Sharon. Yeah, I spoke to both of them. You know, I think it's difficult because I think that, you know, they, they have so many different projects coming at mm -hmm. them. And they're very focused on, I think, a noble mission at the Jackie Robinson Foundation. And I've heard, I, I don't know the details, that they're trying to build a museum, and a couple of us were talking about beforehand, a tribute to Jackie on Barrack Street right. at the foundation yeah, office. Started, heard about uh, that. The building started. They've started. Yeah. 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 
So we can talk after, but I, I don't have any special insight, to be honest with you, just because it was an independent project. And to be clear, for the record, the Robinsons did not in any way endorse the project. Um, I did interview uh, Sharon and Rachel over the last few years um, and got some of their input, but they were not. It was an independent project. Go ahead, and then I'll. Do you think Branch Rickey had a, a very significant influence in Robinson becoming a Republican? Hmm. That's a good question. I had someone else ask me that today in a radio interview, and I will be honest that I'm going to think about this for a second, um, but I didn't delve too much into politics. I had a colleague who was telling me while I was writing that I should spend more time on sort of Jackie's scrapes with Malcolm X um, in the 60s, because I do get into a fair bit in terms of the context of Jackie's faith. He spent a lot of time in the 60s writing uh, and delivering sermons at churches all around the country. And during the long, hot summer of 67, I quote one sermon in particular where, for the message of my book, he, he says very directly, I get that this is complicated and there, there are no easy answers, but in some ways it is easy because the fact of the matter is it's all laid out in the Bible about treating each other with respect, whether you're white or black, and, and he gave very moving sermons about that. So I focused more on that, and I felt like getting too much into Jackie's politics was going to cloud the faith message. So I already had baseball and, and this and the Dodgers and Brooklyn and, and all of that. I, off the top of my head, because I do not spend a lot on politics, I mentioned that he endorsed Nixon and then he was thinking about undoing it because he wasn't totally happy. I think one of his influences about being a Republican, frankly, was his mom. Because I do get into the book that Jackie goes into great detail in his own writings that Mally Robinson, who I said had a few dollars to her name, and then was like a domestic servant in Pasadena. She was a, a, basically a maid and then would like bring food home from her jobs to the kids. You know, long story short, she made a point of never going on public assistance and didn't want to be on welfare and, and really gave the pull yourself up the bootstraps um, and so I, I'm certainly not going to pick sides and parties and all that, but I think the message of pulling yourself up um, is something Jackie heard at a very early age. Um, and so to be honest, I did not get too much into Ricky's politics. I really didn't. Well, the reason this, I've heard about this five field. Uh, yeah. And uh, the, the timing is so hard to get sources on this. Absolutely. Thing. Nothing in the Ricky papers really. Although there's something that's fascinating, in October 1945, he told Arthur Mann, you know, his close yep. assistant, that uh, he would, uh, Arthur Mann was going to write the first story on the signing of Jackie Robinson, yep. but it wasn't public yet. Right. And, you know, Ricky didn't want it done until after the election, but LaGuardia wanted to take credit. And, good and he beat him to the punch, as exactly. I yeah. But there's a letter that does exist on October 7th. He's telling Arthur Mann, Hold, hold, stay in the boat, you know, don't, you know, because I might have found better players. Mm. And, and my theory is, but again, is that he, you know, Ricky knew that Jackie Robinson was a activist, you know, and he was connected to communist front groups at least. Right. And, you know, when he testified or was called to UAC, if he hadn't spoken voluntarily, he might have been subpoenaed. Right. And this was the height of the Cold War. Right. Know? So to me, it's that period is the gun one that's got to be plumbed, you know. Yeah. Because by the fifties, when 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 Ricky's in Pittsburgh and he's no longer, yeah. You know, a and, and you know, you know, I don't want to 
this is such a subject that I've lived with. <laughs> sure. I don't want to take more time on it, but you know, uh, when we did, when I was on the Ken Burns thing, you know, yeah, the uh, you know Rachel says two things about whether you know Ricky ever, you know, said we're going to unleash you in three years. I mean, you used it, yeah, and that's one of the most demeaning things, and it's really not. What you know, that wasn't the way Ricky operated. I mean, he knew Robinson was ready to attack <coughs> yeah. any slight, but and and he and he's rookie of the year and he gets fat, you know, and then he comes in forty eight, yeah. He comes to spring training you know, in forty eight, like twenty, twenty five pounds. And, right, and, and and so Ricky gives a, a Christmas gift as a, a scale to Robinson yeah. in forty eight, you know. Yeah, DeRocher asked if he was pregnant or something like that. All right. No, I, I was fat. You know, he, he was skinny for shock, and then he's fat for me. <laughs> so you know, so it's really it's uh, 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 that relationship. It, it's so fascinating. Yeah, it's it is. So uh, and faith is definitely important. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, I found out this is the last thing. Please, I don't want. <laughs> there was a Bible found uh, in a in a California uh, with a sail at a church. Hmm. And it turned out it was a Bible that the pirates had given to Ricky. Hmm. And it's in Portsmouth, Ohio now, where they have the Portsmouth murals. And, and, it was, and, and we think, and Branch has been involved with this too, uh, the grandson, we think Fred Haney, who was the manager of the pirates, and whose wife became the manager of the Angels and the Halo, yeah. the cap was Fred, Fred Haney's wife's idea because they were religious, they were Catholic. Ricky, of course, was Protestant, but Methodist, but the pirates signed this Catholic Bible as a gift to Ricky oh. in 1953, and they found it in a rummage sale. Oh my oh, gosh, wow. wow. It's now, if you go to Portsmouth, Ohio, to see those murals, which is really right on the Kentucky border, uh, and uh, it's a really ecumenical thing, because the muralist is from Lafayette, Louisiana, yeah. and, and he ran track with Ron Guidry in high school. Oh, wow. <laughs> His name is Robert Gafford, and I mean, really, everything is connected. You see, I said something good about the Yankees. Yeah. <laughs> at the first. So anyway. Yeah, so, that's great. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I tried to stay out of politics. I was also conscious of the fact that some people were going to say, um, you know, you're at Fox News and you're writing a book about baseball, and everyone sort of asked me, why would you care about, you know, and I just, I have a passion for baseball. I don't feel like I want to write a book about Obamacare or some subject that's been mind again and again in, in modern time. I wanted to dig deep on something else. Um, and I'm sure if I had gotten into politics, it'd be, oh, you're saying this because of Fox, or, or you used to work at CNN, or you, some prism. I just, I, so I definitely care about the politics of, of Ricky and Robinson. I just didn't um, jump into that. I didn't want to go off on that tangent. But you're right, there's a lot of rich material there. I think you had a question? Well, Lee, Lee really kind of hit on it. I was gonna ask you, uh, how much did you write about his post-baseball career? and possibly his greatest achievement in his post-baseball career. What do you think it is? Well, um, he was a great civil rights, civil, I would say he was, a, he was a great civil rights leader throughout the, but he was an executive of Chuck Little Nuts. Sure. He created jobs. He wanted to um, extend on banks in Harlem. Yeah. Uh, and he believed in black entrepreneurship. He, he was the full gamut. He was yeah. a true civil rights leader. He was a spokesman. Justice. Yeah, he was. Um, right. I, until until the last days of his life, yeah. when he attended the opening of the 72 World Series in Cincinnati, he stood on that third base line and he said, I hope someday I can see a coach 
here on third base or yeah. a manager, a black manager in the dugout. Yeah. And he died three or four days later. Right. And it was, I think Frank Robinson became the first black manager about two seasons later. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so that was 72. He yeah, became 74, 75. Yeah. And you fast forward to today and you have, you know, I think two black managers, you know, Dave Roberts and Dusty Baker. It's remarkable to me that this many years later, you, you still don't see that many African-American managers. Um, you remind me of Campanella as well. And I see there's a book up there. Um, there was Campy and Jackie. He came, yeah. yeah, that's just a Campy book. That, that's yeah. a Campy book. And I found their relationship kind of fascinating. One of the things that I found in Jackie's papers was a letter exchange, and I don't know if you've ever looked at this, between um, Joe Reichler, the famous baseball writer and uh, for the AP, um, who was friends with Jackie for a long time, um, and Jackie. And basically, Reichler um, is responding to Jackie. I think we don't have Jackie's letter in the papers, but we have Reichler's letter. And basically, it was about 58 or so. Jackie's retired. And um, Reichler has like helped ghostwrite, I think, Campanella's memoirs or something. And there's an excerpt in Look or Life or somewhere. And Jackie felt like he was too nice to Campanella and wrote this blistering letter. And there seemed to be real, you know, I don't know if rivalry is too much, but they went back and forth between being allies and competitors. And, um, you know, the, the letter is so painful because Reichler says, you know, you've just hurt me and destroyed me. And, this, you know, we've been friends for so long and I'm not running you down. And because I, it, it pained Jackie that some people said that Campanella should have gone first. Um, not Jackie, and he felt like Reichler was giving in his book too much credit to Campanella. You know, I was stunned to find, for example, that in the 55 World Series that the Dodgers finally won, I was getting to that part of the narrative, and okay, there's finally some joy in Brooklyn. <laughs> and when you look at the box score, you realize that Jackie did not play in Game 7. Um, and, you know, and I think Don Zimmer played. Uh, Don Zimmer, maybe, because Jackie Don by Hulk. now... I'm sorry. Well, Hulk, yeah. No, but, it wasn't. It was, it was Zimmer. Zimmer. And then Amaros went in for Zimmer. But then Amaros went in for Zimmer. But but Don Hulk may have played third. And, 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 I know Hulk yeah. was on third for the last out. Right. And, and Zimmer, I think, was in the outfield. But the point being, here the Dodgers finally, you know, win the World Series. And, and Jackie's on the bench. Well, you know, I, he had some real run-ins with the manager by then. I mean, I get into some of that, and he, he was always questioning, and Alston, and and and, um, and and on that, though, I thought one of the most poignant things was that even though Jackie didn't play in Game 7, the Yankees lose, and Yogi Berra walks over to the Dodgers clubhouse specifically to find Jackie and say, you know, you really earned this. But it had to be tough for him because, you know, he's shaking his hand saying, you finally did it, and he didn't play that day. And you know... It was killing Jackie, of all people, to not play in Game 7 at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. So, yes, please. I just want to say one thing, and then, Adam, you can ask the question. And I don't want to give it away. You'll have to read the book for this. But when the question was about politics, uh, Ed tells a really beautiful story about something that President Obama told Ed to then relate to Rachel Robinson. And you'll have to read the book for that. But that's a little popular. All right, I like that. Yeah. You got any more whiskey? or we... Absolutely. <laughs> I feel like Adam's got a big wind-up here. I don't... <laughs> well, 
I tried, and um, he didn't want to talk. I spoke to his wife, and um, you know, I respected that. When I was starting to write, um, I read, you know, I was following all these folks, thank you, and Don Newcomb had a health scare a couple of years ago when I was writing, um, and I, hopefully it turned out to be absolutely nothing, and I see he's back with the Dodgers. And Jerry Reinsdorf, who, <clears throat> I, who I said was very helpful to me, the Dodgers and the White Sox share a facility in Arizona. And um, you know, a couple weekends ago, I was there, and the weekend before that, I was with Jerry, and I was talking about the book and stuff. And the weekend before that, Jerry sat with Don Newcomb for a couple hours at a game and said he was doing great, told a couple of stories. Uh, and he said, oh, I should have called you. You know, he just forgot. Um, but, you know, Newcomb, I respect that. You know, with Branca as well. I wish I had talked to Branca. I just wanted, you know, it's great to talk to folks um, directly, of course. But he was talked out, and then, you know, and, and you know, I thought Branca's memoirs were very helpful to me because right. I felt like he was very open in there. Um, and Erskine really made up for it with a lot of great stories. Yeah. You know, and, and I will tell you, you know, I, I was moved by Branca early on, um, goes to some of the um, players who probably signed that petition to try to block Jackie mm -hmm. from the Deep South and says, you guys all worked in gas stations down in Seattle, Alabama, Georgia, wherever, with, with black guys. And you coexisted. Why can't you coexist on the Dodgers? And one of them from the Deep South said, well, there's a big difference, you know. They used to pump the gas, and we fixed the cars, so we weren't equal. And Branca very quickly said, well, "I got news for you: you won't be equal on the ball field either. Jackie's better than you." <laughs> and that one anecdote, you know, told me a lot about Branca's character, but also just to me, kind of summed up the whole Jackie legacy, really. Yeah. yeah. Baseball question. Yeah. Were you able? Thanks to all the video that's available and old film. Wow. Were you able to look at two things? One, you mentioned the great catch that allowed, that set up the playoff because the Dodgers for the first yeah. time were behind, you know, the Dodgers. Against the Phillies, won. I think. And yeah. he dove. I, I've heard, but I've never seen the film. I've heard oh. that he trapped it. Oh, really? <laughs> and, exactly. You know, and, but, but, but does the film exist? So I didn't, I'll be honest on that one, I didn't, but the other one you're going to mention, I did. The slower so, one? No, 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 the slide at home, the, the well, World Series? Because, you know, Jackie was not a great first baseman. You know? Oh, oh, oh. And, and what I'd like to see is, is, you know, was this, you know, it's made to be a big part of, you know, it yeah. kept Slaughter out of the Hall of Fame for a long, long time. Right. I mean, was it? As Did he deliberately spike him? Yeah, or, or, or was, was it, it Jackie's you know, leg? If you've was... ever played, if you ever played, you know footwork at first base yeah. is not the easiest thing. Right. No, that's that. I mean, I was taught that. in high school ball. You know, if the guy's leg is on the base, you step on it. You yeah. know, you keep going, you run through yeah. the bat. Yeah. Um, I didn't do that. Well, I did do something else. Um, but the first one you were. Oh, I, I didn't want to forget. You know, that was remarkable when Jackie, whether he caught it or or, or trapped it against the Phillies with the bases loaded, um, because Jackie himself recalled you know, basically passing out, you know. He, he got knocked out because he hit the ground so hard. And he was trying to get himself out of the game, he says. And Pee Wee convinced him, you know, you got to stay in, you got to stay in. And then he stays in and hits the home run to win the game. I will tell you that I thought you were going to ask me this, which is um, I happened to be at Yankee Stadium um, with some friends, and I was behind the scenes and I met some current umpires. And I told them about the project. And they said, huh. You know, we recently were sitting around and we had the shift where I guess you've got the umpires who are at the games 
and then you've got a crew or two who are in the league offices or whatever um, doing the replay. So if the manager says we got to do this, you've got the crew. And so I don't know if they were in between innings or in between games, but somebody said to somebody, hey, do you think we could use this technology to run through uh, whether or not Jackie stole home plate in, in game one of the 55 World Series? <laughs> and they used the modern technology, and they tell me that Jackie was safe by a hair. Yeah, Yoho, too. Yeah, because the, the tag, tag was too late. The tag was too late. The ball was there, but the tag was late. Did you ever see Jackie Robinson was on Sports Challenge, you know, that Dick Enberg did in the early 70s, and they showed that, you know, he was with others, the Dodgers. Yeah. And, and he kind of poo-pooed it, saying, that was a really dumb play of mine. It was down by three runs in the eighth inning, <laughs> but I wanted to do something to, you know, make the team uh, wake up or something. That's great. That's great. By and the way, I'm going to break my own... Uh, Oh. Well, about politics right yeah. now. Oh, but uh, since Lee mentioned that, on uh, I watch Meet the Press every Sunday, and in the introduction, it's the 70th anniversary, I believe, of uh, Meet the Press. Yeah, well, the 1947 as well. Yeah. Yeah, and they show these old little uh, stills of people who have been on Meet the Press. It's just a, Bob Dole and everybody. Yeah, yeah, and there's a I could swear it's Jackie Robinson. Yeah. Jackie was definitely on Meet the Press at least once because I watched that video. I believe from the 60s. You've seen the but, video. But I've seen it, yeah. Wow. It definitely exists. And uh, either Chuck Todd or Tim Russert before him played it on a previous anniversary. Oh, they did. Oh. I, I, re, I mean, I can't remember every utterance, but it was you know something about where we are with uh, civil rights and you know what you would expect. I, I don't remember him saying anything highly controversial, but... You know, it was just Jackie speaking his mind. It's yeah. so not, it, it's it's amazing to listen to Jackie Robinson because yeah. his voice was so different than what you would have expected. Uh, yeah, it's kind of high pitched in a way. You've yeah. seen the Happy Feldman stuff, right? No, what's that? Oh, you've got that is you know, what's the, the Doak Ewing? Doak. You know, sports films out in Illinois, mm. Napierville, at Illinois. Yeah, he has a, uh, the, the only two non-hole gangs exist that exist. Both have Jackie Robinson working out the kids in the uh, 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 right field corner before the Dodger won the game. Uh -huh. And I mean, I, I wound up as my favorite story almost because I found the kid who won it in 1956. Oh my gosh. He's now, he, uh, and, uh, and so uh, Jackie works, you know, and, and he's got, you know, he, he had such a great public sense, you know, but, but this is what's fascinating about him is that he was burning up inside, oh, but, but, but both of them were real. That's why it's yeah. so challenging to write about, and the same with Ricky. Yeah, yeah. And so there's one kid uh, who, a, a poor kid, I didn't find this kid, I hope he survived. He asked a, a question about, uh, you know, they always have, you ask him a question about baseball, and then he works you out in the right to form. <laughs> so this kid said, well, Jackie, what happens if the bases are loaded and a guy hits a fly ball to right field and the wind picks it up and, and it comes back and he's running and, and you know and, and the way he handled this kid he says well boy that was quite a question well let's see if we can break it down yeah 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 Lee that's very well put the way he said he had a great public sense yeah I have seen I have both of them yeah and um, he was great with that just goes, he was a great. Jerry Reinsdorf, who you know now is worth several billion dollars and won six rings with the Bulls, he says that one of his only regrets is that he used to spend a nickel uh, for the subway to get from uh, his, his apartment uh, to the game, and then he'd walk home to save the nickel. But they were in a rush to get there because 
they'd have the, the grandstand seats and you'd be able to pay, I think it was 50 cents, and you'd run to the first row. Um, and so one day they were there before the game and somebody tapped him on the shoulder, he and his friend got the first row. And he said, hey kid, would you like to be on the Jackie Robinson show? Because it was a radio show. And they looked at each other and they, they snuffed out that it was a setup and that they were gonna go to the back and be on the show and then say, oh no, he's getting ready for the game, sorry. And then somebody was gonna take their seats. And so um, all of a sudden uh, they say, ah, oh, come on, those guys are teasing us or whatever. And about 20 minutes later, two other kids came running up and sat in the fourth or fifth row and said, we just met Jackie Robinson. We were on the Jackie Robinson show. And he said that he, he's, he really regrets it. He's such a Dodger fan. He's such a Jackie fan. And he had one chance to meet him and he missed it. Yes. Yeah. Well, any, anyone who hasn't asked a question yet? I have a question. It's more about you than about that, you know? Uh, you know, we're talking here about, about events uh, of many decades ago. Yeah. A catch, with a track or a catch. Yeah. Or, a, or whether the motivation of uh, country slaughter about whether it be intended to step on. Sure. So, my question to you is you're a busy man, you deal with. Swim among sharks. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you have a tough job, so this is a major undertaking. Yeah. Why did you, why did you undertake? Why, why Jackie Robinson, and why not? Well, I, I struggle with whether I should tell you the ending of the book, because uh, my son kind of kept me in the project, and I'll let you read it. And that that's don't 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 I shouldn't don't read say it. It's it's real. I almost cry when I read. Really, it, so, that's yeah. cool. All right, so I'll let you read that. And that was that's sort of the why. Because um, I really felt compelled, like I had this book in me, and I really wanted to get it off my chest. Um, there's a the thing. Um, how, you know, is sort of, it just was like, I was collecting string and collecting string and collecting string. And um, I found that I just couldn't write at night, no matter what I tried. I just, there's so many darn distractions now, whether it's social media, whether there's a ball game on, or whatever. So I found like I'm not going to be able to wall myself off at night. So I'd put on the ball game or whatever and read one of Lee's book, books or read Boys of Summer or go through some magazine articles I got on eBay um, or go through files I had from the Jackie Robinson papers or the Brant Tricky papers. And I would do my, my research at night and then just have to set the clock and get up at 4 or 5 or whatever and just write in the morning real early. And my wife is a trooper because she's here surely and I wouldn't have done it without her in many ways. Well, that's, um, that's a process. I understand. It's that. a pro yeah. But 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 what about Jackie Robinson motivated? Yeah, I mean, that, that newfound. Yeah. Okay. Fair question. Um, so I'm a Yankees fan, so I have no uh, particular love of the Dodgers. My love for the Dodgers and for Brooklyn really grew during this project because I don't know how it can't. You know, I feel like. Um, there was something that kept pulling me back to this sort of yesteryear uh, of baseball. Um, and when I hear these stories, I mean, I feel like I would give almost anything uh, to spend an afternoon in Ebbets Field. You know, like if you had this time machine and you could pick one thing um, other than, you know, bringing a family member back or, you know, if it was just some silly thing and not something consequential, I would just spend an afternoon in Ebbets Field. And when I hear... I mean, I have people emailing me, I have, you know, and, and I have people coming up to me practically on the street now saying, and in fact, I'll tell you one of those stories because I'll have to get my notes because I couldn't believe this. Um, and I, I just had this sense of, 
longing for this yesteryear of Ebbets Field that I've heard, but I didn't want to just write the um, Doris Kearns Goodwin book, which I read, which was quite good, but was more about like, I couldn't, I had to be authentic. I couldn't fake the fact in any event as an author, but especially as a journal, as a working journalist, I couldn't, I couldn't fake the fact that I was a Dodgers fan or that I was ever in Ebbets Field. I wasn't. I'm not, you know, I, never, I was born in Queens, was not born in Brooklyn. Um, but I'm a genuine baseball fan. Um, I've always, the, the, the th and, and, and I felt like I had a story to tell. I felt like I had something of consequence about faith that had been touched on in other books, but I wanted to put it on the table and say, there's another dimension here. And as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking through, there's two connections to Jackie Robinson. The one at the end of the book that I forgot about, and I, I have this revelation at the end of the book. Um, and when I started out at CNN roughly in 2004, because I literally, again, like it's in the back of my brain somewhere, and I hear you pressing me like, well, what was it, what was it? Um, somehow one day in 2004, I was told that the, the Robinson family was gonna be in the Capitol. I was covering Congress. And Jackie Robinson was gonna get the Congressional Gold Medal posthumously. And um, I wanted to do a story on it, and I did it for Aaron Brown's show. He was a big anchor at CNN at the time. And it was hard to get a piece, a package, a tape package on his show, because he was a tough customer. Um, but I think he was a baseball fan, and one of his producers said, this Jackie thing is kind of a cool, you know, that they're doing the gold medal, but, but what's the story? And, and a buddy of mine worked for one of the Massachusetts members of Congress. And sometimes, like, there's things, like, right in front of you as a journalist, and you just have to ask the questions and actually get the answers. And in this case, you know, I just took it as gospel that the press release said that, you know, John Kerry from Massachusetts and Ted Kennedy and Richard Neal, a congressman, that they had sponsored this resolution. And I think one of the producers said to me, why are they doing it? Why, why isn't it Chuck Schumer and the New York delegation? He played for Brooklyn or California since he grew up in Pasadena. So I started digging around and learned that because of this sham tryout that the Red Sox had done um, in the 40s where they welcomed, welcomed, I use loosely, Jackie and two other players to Fenway Park. And uh, Jethro was his name, right? Sam Jethro, 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 Jethro Williams. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, they basically had a state lawmaker or a city councilman saying like, you, we're, I'm gonna pass a law unless you let black players in, you're not gonna be able to you know, play in the city of Boston anymore or whatever, you know, and they were fighting. <laughs> so they said, oh, no, 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 we're trying them out, we're trying them out, they're not as good as the white player, let's try them out, let's try them out, you know? And they bring them in for a tryout and the way Jackie tells it, and I never had it made, they were slamming balls off the, off the Green Monster and this and that. However, as I recall, there was, they brought in like high school pitchers to pitch to them, which seemed to me to be a slam. Like, well, you guys can't really hit the, the white professional pitchers, so we brought in a, a high school guy, uh, number one. And number two, there are, and this is something where I tried, you know, so you can be accurate, you know, there, there is reporting that suggests that either an executive of the Red Sox, someone high up, was shouting the N-word and other things from the stands while they were trying out. And so they, they just were not serious about this tryout. In fact, I write in the book that in, in Jackie, some of his writings in his papers at the Library of Congress, he talks about how when Clyde Soupforth came to Chicago in 45 and sort of, you know, figuratively tapped him on the shoulder uh, at Comiskey, the old Comiskey Park, when the monarchs came to town and said, hey, Grant Tricky wants to meet you. Um, basically, 
he, 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 didn't, he didn't want any of it. He said, I've already been, you know, I've been through this, you know, the, you know, the Red Sox and everybody, they, you know, I, they've tried to, I, he, just, he just didn't believe it. And I think that, again, gets back to faith that when he actually sat down at 215 Montague Street on August 28, 1945, and, and Ricky started, you know, reading the life of Christ to him, yeah. you know, they connected on a level. And again, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think that there was a real connection there that, that, that really, they spoke the same language. Um, and so I remember interviewing, uh, as a Yankees fan, it was funny, Werner and uh, the guys who ran the Red Sox. And they were very open about saying, you know, uh, when I said, hey, I want to put on the record, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm at CNN, but I'm, I'm a Yankees fan. And one of Werner or, or John Henry or one of the guys said, uh, oh, the evil empire? Okay, fine. I guess we're not going to get a fair shake. He was joking. Um, and then I did this piece. I remember it was a piece that I, I submitted it as a package that helped of three or four stories that won me the Everett Dirksen McKinley Award. I forgot until you said that tonight. I believe that was one of three or four stories we submitted. And it was a moving story to me. And it just stuck in the back of my head that why, and, and these Red Sox executives, to their credit, said that they felt like they wanted a right and a wrong. Um, and I thought it was also interesting that a year or two ago, the city council in Philadelphia passed a resolution posthumously apologizing to Jackie Robinson for what Ben Chapman and, and the city of Philadelphia did to him. And at first I thought, you know, what? You know, why? And Rachel Robinson accepted the apology. And I was talking to an African-American journalist today who was interviewing me, and he said, have you ever talked to Major League Baseball about issuing an apology for like the secret meeting, they, the secret vote they had to not integrate the game? And you know, I said, no. And he said, you know, that matters. You know, I said, why? You know, what? I didn't fully understand it. And I mentioned to him Philadelphia apologizing, and he said, that matters to people, that they were wrong. And you know, if Major League Baseball is going to step up and the commissioner is going to apologize for that, so that, that was interesting to me. What, quick story, and then I'll take you know, as many more questions. I guess we've got to clear out in about 15 minutes. So I was in Arizona a couple weekends ago, I said, and Jerry Reinsdorf um, said, yeah, we'll come out and watch some games. He said, oh, I forgot. He said, you know, we're going to go, we've got this Stand Up uh, to Cancer event, a fundraiser. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll go to that or whatever. He said, well, it's in Palm Springs. And Bud Seal and I have to go. So we went on a private plane. I said, I'll go, I'll go to Palm Springs for dinner from Scottsdale. <laughs> so we go there, and I, I had a couple of early copies of the book, and I was super excited about it. And Jerry has been a, an ambassador for this, and I, and I really love him dearly. And he said, uh, you've got to read this book. And Ted Lerner, the owner of the Nationals, was at this fundraiser. Because he has a home in Rancho. And so I give him a book, and, and I sign it. And I'm really trying to get it out there to some of these big baseball people. And I had one more copy, and I wanted to get it to another VIP. And it was sitting on the table. And before I could, a molecular biologist, I can, can't even pronounce it because I'm not as smart as this guy, <laughs> um, uh, said, I overheard you um, talking about a book. What, what's this book about? And I said, yeah. I wrote this book about Jackie Robinson and faith. And the man happened to be Jewish. And he's a professor. He's a molecular biologist, I said. And he said, I grew up in Brooklyn. I was a Dodgers fan. I said, really? He said, what's, your, what's the book about? And I told him about faith. And I tell him some of the stuff I told you. And he said, hmm. He said, I believe God had a real role in this. And I said, why? He said, I was five or six years old and um, lived in a nice part of Brooklyn. And I remember my mom told me for the first time I could walk the seven blocks from near our house to 
um, the school. And along the way, there was an apartment building that um, had just gone online and had some rooms available, some apartments available, and it had a swimming pool. It was one of the only apartments that had a swimming pool. And I really wanted to live there. I thought, wow, they have a swimming pool. And you don't see a swimming pool in Brooklyn in an apartment building in 1945 or 6 or whatever it was. I said, oh, really? So what's the story? And he said, well, around that time I was learning how to read. And they had a sign outside saying, apartments available. And I remember reading, no Jews, no dogs, no N-word. I said, really? He said, yeah. That was Brooklyn. I said, really? And I didn't grow up there. And I stopped. And he said, yeah. Yeah, that was Brooklyn. And in my book, I talk about how Brooklyn is a wonderful place. And I still believe that. People obviously are imperfect. Um, and Carl Erskine and others say it can only happen, have happened in Brooklyn because it was such a melting pot. But then now this man was telling me this. And then I said, okay. And he said, I remember one other thing about my childhood. I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, I was 13 and I had my bar mitzvah. And my father said, after the bar mitzvah, he took me into his bedroom and said, I want to talk to you. And he went in and he opened a drawer. And in that drawer, there was a compartment. And he opened it up. And he said, I want you to see this. And he looked in there and it was full of cash. He said, more money than he'd ever seen. And he said to his father, why? And he said, this is here in case you ever have to leave. Because his father had fled the Nazis in Europe. And um, I looked at him and he said, um, so I believe that God had a role in Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey coming together. And I said, let me go get this book. And so I got the last book that I had and I signed it to him. And so as I don't leave you on a, you know, a, an, too much of an emotional moment. Um, on the way out, the host of the party, who probably has a lot more money than I do, said, um, Ed, you said you were going to, you, you still got that book? You, you told me you were going to give me that book. And he had just hosted me. And I said, oh, I, I don't know what I mumbled, but I said that somehow I'd, I'd lost track of the books and that I would mail him one. I still haven't done that. I need to do that. Um, but I thought that that man deserved the book. Yep. And um, wow. it was very moving to me. So that, those kind of stories are just, you know, really make, make me. Has, has he visited well, that, the 215 Montague Street? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I haven't been inside, to be honest. Well, the TD Bank, which is there. Yeah, there's a plaque outside. And there's also a mural of Ebbets Fields. Yeah. Yeah, and if you go behind where the Evansfield Apartments, the Jackie Robinson School's got a really cool mural and all of that. Um, and so, hey guys, how are you? On so, the, on, yeah, go ahead. Just from a time factor, we're going to have, unfortunately, the clock is now ticking and we're going to have to end it. And uh, if Ed keeps telling stories, I'm going to definitely cry. So <laughs> we're going to end it there. And for those uh, listening, make sure you get this book. For those here, make sure you get Ed to sign the book. These have not been signed yet. Uh, the name of the book, again, 42 Faith, the rest of the Jackie Robinson story, published by W Publishing, an imprint of Thomas Nelson, written beautifully by Ed Henry. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Jay, it was really great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.